Yes, welcome back to Brave New Earth. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. For anyone that's new here on the Brave New Earth podcast, we chat to the leading founders and investors in the climate tech revolution. And today we have a, a very, very cool guest. We have James from Temperpack. Temperpack is an incredible solution taking on the packaging industry. I think it's no secret to anyone here that the packaging industry is incredibly wasteful ton of plastic used, ton of wastage. So a kind of a huge, huge three, almost 300 billion issue sector to go after. You've done incredibly well taking on the giants here. I don't want to talk numbers, but some of your recent raises, some of your recent numbers have been incredible. So I'm excited to dig into the journey of building Temper Pack. So first things first, what is the problem that Temper Pack is trying to solve? Thanks for having me on. Uh, the, the problem in a nutshell is that the amount of packaging that we use is, is going up because of e-commerce. And within the segment that we're focused on, the amount of cold chain packaging is also increasing. So cold chain packaging is like insulation and gel pack, stuff that keeps food and medicine cold. And when you look at that narrow segment, there's a lot of plastic foam that's being used. And so we started Temper Pack to basically answer a question of, you know, what would a better version of styrofoam look like? And then how would you scale that up and, and build a business around that? The cold chain is basically anything you ship that you have to keep cold, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. there's two big kind of legs to that. There's the food side. And so you think about like meal kits or groceries um, or even more and more now, like, you know, rapid deliveries to, to people's houses. And then you have, and that, you know, there's a B2C component of that with like online ordering. There's also a huge, you know, B2B side of it of like, how does a grocery store get their food? You know, how does a convenience store get their food? Then the, the other big side of it is, is like science industry. So you have, you know, you have drug manufacturers, you have clinical trials going on. You have wholesalers that are, you know, distributing those down to pharmacies. Now you have online pharmacies, you have biotech companies, you have medical device companies, you have a whole hospital network, you have blood and tissue and organ, you know, thanks. And all this stuff is flying around the world every day and it all will go bad if it reaches, you know, above a certain temperature. So that's where the uh, cold chain industry comes in. What does it look like today? Is, is it pretty much exclusively plastic? What were the solutions looking like before you guys came into the market? It's changing. I'd say the past five years, it's, it's really changed. But if you look like 10 years ago, it was just dominated by pretty much plastic foams. Like mm. styrofoam would be the one that everyone thinks of when you think of, if I want to ship you some frozen steaks, like how would I do it? The first thing everyone thinks about is, well, I probably should get a big styrofoam cooler and mail that. What is it about that styrofoam? I mean, this, this may be incredibly obvious to you and a lot of people in the industry, but just, just why is that so bad for the planet? Yeah. Well, it, it's actually not that obvious. I mean, you look at it and it's super cheap. You can get it everywhere yeah. in the world. It's very lightweight. It insulates really well, and it has some some structure to it. So there's a lot of good stuff about, I mean, the styrofoam industry has had 70 or 80 years to sort of perfect that product, and they've had pretty much a monopoly on the way that you keep things cold. But the, the big downside to it is, one, it was never really designed for e-commerce. So if you think about a fulfillment center that needs to ship out 100,000 boxes to people's doorsteps every week, uh, it takes them like an enormous amount of space to store all the styrofoam coolers and space is expensive. So it wasn't really designed for e-commerce. And the second problem is, is the obvious one around sustainability. You know, styrofoam, you got to get it from fossil fuels, you know, so you got to drill oil to get it. It's very energy intensive to make because the way that you got to basically what they call a steam chest, you use a ton of energy to, to expand these beads and, and make these coolers. And then, you know, what do you do with it? Once you get it, you know, you can't really recycle it. It doesn't biodegrade or compost and takes up a lot of space in a landfill. In fact, about, at least in the U.S. here, about 30% of all the space in a landfill is just packaging, which is kind of crazy. Why is landfill so bad? Again, like, what, what is it about that, apart from the fact that it looks horrible? Is, is there kind of more, like, a deeper level of environmental impact about a landfill, which is... Like, I guess, particularly bad for the planet because it's something that comes up all the time. Is it just like the, that is just so much wasted material that's unnecessary? 
I think it's a really good question. You know, I was asking myself that about a year ago. I was like, why are landfills bad? Because eh. the recycling industry, like, you know, like a bottle like this, you know, only 9% of plastics that we've ever made as a human species have ever been recycled. You know, so it's yeah. like recycling, there's a lot of arguments to say that it doesn't doesn't work that well. And, you know, composting is great, but how are you going to get a city with millions of people to all compost unless you have a really efficient way of extracting all that, you know, organic matter and, and doing something with it and selling it. So I'm, I'm kind of with you on like, why are landfills bad? And I kind of come down to a few, a few things. Um, if you don't have the space for them, obviously that, that's a problem, but also yeah. if you're not capturing the methane, you know, if, if sort of biological content is in a landfill and there's no oxygen present, it can, it can produce methane, which is, you know, a pretty harmful greenhouse gas emissions. But also if, if you don't protect the bottom of it or, you know, sort of how it's going to leach out to the environment, I think that could be bad. Yeah. But if you have a really, really well-contained, you know, bioreactive landfill with methane capture it, and you have the space to, to handle that, it doesn't seem like it's a horrible thing. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's one of those things that people just assume is, is bad instantly. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think it's actually non-obvious. I think, yeah, methane is definitely an issue and space is definitely an issue. And the problem with plastic, it just doesn't go away, does it? And you see, and, and yeah. a lot of it, it doesn't even go to landfill. You just see it in, yeah, on beaches. And, you know, you, we've all seen those like horror stories of the places in India, Pakistan, for example, which are just absolutely yeah. swamped. So how are you guys solving that? What, like what is what is Temper Pack specifically? What's the products that you sell and why is it so much more sustainable? We're tackling a very specific issue, which is cold chain Man. packaging, which is kind of dominated by plastic foams. And we're trying to do it in a way where sustainability is a given. Like that's our job. It's not the customer's job, not the end consumer's job. If they recycle it, great. We're going to make it recyclable. If they want to compost it, great. We'll make it compostable. If it goes to a landfill, we'll make sure that it's been engineered in a way where it's limited you know, impact. But what we're really focused on is making something that people want to buy and they want to use, which means it has to be really cheap and it has to be really effective. And then of course, it's going to be sustainable because we're never going to make something that's not sustainable. So we focus on, well, what do people need? They need something that's, first of all, is going to work. So it's got to be really high performance as far as insulation goes. And there's ways of quantifying that with, you know, our values and thermal conductivity and stuff like that. And then it has to be something that is going to be affordable and it's going to make their supply chain more efficient. So it has to be something that, for example, if you're getting 5,000 styrofoam coolers on a truck, we want to figure out a way to get you 50,000 you know, coolers on a truck by selling you, for example, a machine and, and inputs. And then it's got to be something that helps brands. You know, It's got to be something that when consumers open up the box, they'd say, how this is a really thoughtful way to keep the food cold. Like we, we, you know, we would have never thought this much engineering and, and artistry went into the packaging. So we want to bring all, all three of those together, you know, something affordable, scalable, something that is very sustainable and something that just works really well. And it's hard to yeah. do that if you're going after everything, but if you just focus on cold chain packaging insulation, that is single use for e-commerce companies shipping perishables. I really do think you can be the best in the world when you sort of narrow that focus. So what's the specific material science innovation which has enabled you to do that, right? Because if it was easy, I'm assuming everyone would have done it. What, what was specifically different about you guys or the brainwave you had that enabled you to kind of hit those three missions and, and boxes that, that, that you mentioned? It was a lot of trial and error and a lot of great <laughs> customer feedback. <laughs> so it was kind of a self-reinforcing feedback loop. We had some customers and we'd always go to them and almost in like a, you know, Andy Grove says only the paranoid survive, you know? So we'd go to customers and we'd say like, all right, forget everything good about our product. We, we don't care about that. Tell us everything that annoys you about it. Yeah. And the first product we were selling was, so we went to, we went to this company Plated here in the U.S., and they believe even before that, we went to HelloFresh. I don't know if you're familiar with, with HelloFresh, but they're yeah, a, yeah. You know, a big meal kit provider. And we said, okay, we're going to show you something. And instead of being a rigid cooler, it's actually a flexible liner that you put inside of a cardboard box, kind of squishy. Yeah. And what we didn't tell them exactly was like, this is made from fiberglass, you know, like the squishy kind of blanket fiberglass that you might see in your house. And we wrapped yeah. it in plastic. And so- it wasn't, it wasn't the, 
the best thing ever, but it was it was a it was a flexible insulation, which means you could get way more on a truck. So it had that benefit, and it performed really well. And a funny story, the way that we would test it is we'd take boxes, we'd pack them with steaks and you know salmon and produce, and we'd go into my parents' basement where there's a sauna, and we'd lock yeah. it in the sauna for like two days <laughs> with with temperature loggers in there, and then we'd get it out. We'd load up the temperature profile into Excel and we'd see how long did we keep the food frozen. And eventually, once we got it to like 60 hours, 65 hours, we'd show that to the customer and we'd say, hey, we have something. It's not styrofoam. You can get more on a truck and uh, we can brand it for you. And uh, here's the data and here's here's the cost. And so that led to our first sale, which was about $100,000. And so we started producing, you know, these fiberglass insulation blankets wrapped in branded plastic. And that was the the first step that allowed us, they gave us permission to start getting real feedback. Yeah, And that led to this really good insight, which was we brought it to the second customer and we said, hey, here's this squishy fiberglass blanket wrapped in plastic. You can get more on a truck. It's not styrofoam. You can brand it. It looks better. It'll take up less space in a landfill. And they said, yeah, you're going to have to try harder than that because that's not a good product. We don't want fiberglass and it's still made from, you know, you can't recycle it. It's still wrapped in plastic. So we, um, we, we went back, you know, speaking about this feedback loop, we went back to the internet and we said, okay, <laughs> if we can't make it from glass fiber, how do we make it from plant fiber? And so I can remember literally in like Brian's basement, like Googling, what are the, what are the most abundant sources on the planet of plant fiber and cotton, you know, pops up. Another one that pops up is called a uh, jute, J-U-T-E. And it's in this family of fibers called bast fibers. So jute and hemp is kind of in that same family. We, we kind of had this little light bulb moment where we realized that, you know, in the U.S. jute isn't that popular, but globally it's a huge commodity. And they use it for making things like twine and rope. And they use it for, for making uh, coffee bags, like the large coffee bags uh. that kind of look like they're woven together. They're kind of tan colored. Uh, that's all jute fiber. And so the next idea was, okay, get rid of the fiberglass and replace it with jute fiber, which is this really awesome plant. It grows like nine feet tall in three months, sequesters a ton of carbon when it does that. And we can actually get it from a recycled source because what are all the coffee importers doing with all the coffee bags? They don't have any use for them. So if we can get coffee bags that are used that are made from jute fiber, Maybe we can send them somewhere where they can grind it up, maybe like a carpet manufacturer or someone that makes mattresses or someone that makes, you know, felt filters or something. And so we found a company that recycled clothes and other textiles, and they said that they could grind up these bags and then make them into like an insulation blanket for us. So we, we didn't invent the jute. We didn't invent the coffee bags. We didn't invent the textile recycling. We just connected two dots that had not yet been connected. And so we, we went back to this company in New York and we said, Hey, you know, thank you for your feedback. Here's a new idea. This is made from recycled coffee bags. It's this kind of nice soft blanket. And when you put it inside a cardboard box, it'll keep the food cold and you can't recycle it, but it is a hundred percent plant fiber. So you can compost it. And they said, um, you know, that's pretty cool. And they, they gave us a million dollar purchase order for wow. that. And obviously we didn't know how to make it. We didn't have employees. We didn't have space. We didn't have money. We didn't have patents. We didn't have machines. We didn't have anything. But we now had a reason to go learn more stuff. <laughs> yeah. So we we took that purchase order and we went to like everyone that we knew that we thought might be able to help us out. And we said, hey, we have a million dollar purchase order. If we don't deliver on it, we're just going to look like complete idiots. We have a product idea. But we need, we need to get this thing rolling because we need to deliver truckloads in like 90 days from now. And uh, looking back, it's so funny how like all of this, you know, worked and, and didn't work. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I kind of, I kind of liken it to this analogy of like, if you, if you were in a room that had a door and behind it was another room with the door, like you would keep opening the doors. But if you knew that there was 2000 rooms, you might give up. But if you didn't know that, you just keep so it's like, we just kind of kept going and we didn't even yeah. know all the problems that were in front of us. Like one <laughs> problem was we imported all this, all this jute fiber from Amsterdam 
Amsterdam yeah. was uh, they, they, they like they know everything about jute fiber because all of the chocolate and the and the coffee beans they kind of flow through through that area, and so we imported all this all this jute fiber, and the samples we had gotten were were air shipped to us. So we got them; they looked great. The stuff that went on the ocean for like two weeks it smelled horrible. It had all compacted, and with insulation, you need thickness. If, if thickness goes away, your your performance goes away, and so. We got this stuff and we were like, oh no, like, what do we do? You know? <laughs> and so we, you know, put some nails into these hand devices so we could scrape it, you know, to make it more fluffy. And then we bought an electronic nose that would sniff it and give us like a VOC reading on like, how do you quantify? Turns out smells a very hard thing to quantify. And uh, cause it, cause it smelled bad cause it was already starting to compost a little bit. And then the, the other problem was that like, it was just thin, you know? So. We, we built an oven and we would send it through the oven and we'd have two scales, you know, one on the side, one on that side. And if it was 10% lighter on that side, we, that was a quality check of, okay, we probably got all the smell out because we removed the moisture. Yeah. And then we also had this operation of people just combing these things to, to make them more fluffy so they'd insulate better. And so it ended up being like a wild thing where I remember one time, like just looking at the operation being like, we're buying jute fiber from overseas that were then basically like washing and combing and drying to give to companies selling internet food. Like what is going on? <laughs> yeah. But uh, and at one time we were sending it through the oven and the whole oven caught on fire because we made it out of cardboard, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but then we, you know, we, we remade it out of metal. We learned how to get the vendor to, you know, cure the smell beforehand. And uh, so, so we, we got pretty smart in terms of how to build you know, blankets from natural fibers and make insulation out of those. But then again, with this kind of paranoid mindset, we went to our customers and said, you know, uh, we've now done, let's say $12 million in revenue. What, you know, this is not a billion dollar company. This is not even a billion dollar idea. Like what could we do better? And they were like, well, the blankets, they kind of smell still. They're pretty heavy. They, you know, the tolerances aren't great. If we buy a 12 inch product, it might come in at 14 inches, you know? They're like, this just doesn't look like something that is going to be an enormously scalable idea. And so we're like, okay, well, what what would it look like if we just started over? Like, clean slate. And they're like, we want something that is way lighter, you know, just way lighter because you pay when you're shipping by weight. We want something that is, there's got to be a paper and recyclability element to it because you can't uh. you can't recycle these, these fiber mats. We want to be able to brand it. We want it to have more structural properties to it. We want it to be cheaper and we want it to be something that insulates better. So that kind of sent us down this path of like, if, if we want to survive, we got to come up with our truly our own product. Right now we're sort of piecing together all this stuff, you know, the jupe fiber from Amsterdam, the, you know, the mattress suppliers down in Tennessee, you know, the bag suppliers, but like, let's make something that is, that is our own product. So then we are like, okay, well, how do we do it? It's gotta be paper. It's gotta be lightweight. It's gotta be something original, something we can patent. And we thought about using cardboard. We thought about using like, do you know, like honeycomb, like that yeah, kind of yeah, honeycomb yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, we thought about using like shredded paper, you know, tissue, probably over like several beers and just thinking like, it, uh, I, I forget how it came to us, but if you look at the food industry, they've kind of solved this. And again, it's kind of putting together a dot that, that no one had put together quite yet, which is like, you know, puffed food snacks. Think about like Cheetos or anything that you'd buy in a convenience store. If you take away all the flavoring, what do you have? You basically have a little foam, you know, um, uh, and that foam is natural. It's either cornstarch or wheat starch or potato starch or, you know, something like that. So you have this natural foam that's very lightweight and the food industry has already figured out how to make this stuff in massive quantities. So how can you take a little puffed starch snack and make an <laughs> insulator out of it? And yeah. um, we figured out that starch also if you get it a little bit wet it gets sticky you know yeah. so let's say i took uh, a box like a huge box of cheetos and and put it down on paper and sprayed it with a spray gun and then put another piece of paper on top of it and squish it all together and let it dry it would make this big insulation panel and so we we then kind of drew out an like an industrial size process for how you would make these panels and we bought the exact same type of equipment that like Frito-Lay, you know, or, you know, a big snack provider would make. And now we're buying 
you know, now we're at this point where we have a huge, basically a grain elevator outside filled with, you know, half a million pounds of cornstarch. And we'll <laughs> yeah. just run through that and we'll puff it up into foam. We'll spray it with a little bit of water to get it a little bit tacky. And we'll sandwich it between two sheets of paper. And then, you know, we will, we'll cut that and we'll slit it and then we'll wrap it in paper. And what you get to is a product that's very lightweight. It's almost a hundred percent natural ingredients. It insulates really well. You can, you can print on the paper, you can brand it and it has some good structure to it. And it's affordable because we're not reinventing the wheel. We're just sort of bringing it to a new industry. Yeah. That's so interesting. So that, that's where the product sits today, is it? That, that was literally inspired by chips. Yes. yes. <laughs> in fact, now we have, we have, we have, we have, a, we have another product now that we're, we're introducing, which takes it one step further. Yeah. That's so interesting. I want to, before we dive into the, to, to, to that product, I just think that story of you sitting around having a few beers and looking at a product that already existed and applying to something incredibly new is so interesting, particularly for founders. You yeah. Know, a lot of, a lot of the incredible innovations are just connecting dots or collecting stuff. So if you think about, for example, I think the interesting one is always the the iPhone. Apple basically didn't invent anything in the iPhone. They just put it together in the best way possible. And I think that's a really interesting lesson. And you can create new solutions, piecing together stuff that innovations that already exist. Yeah. And it's even funnier that it's come from snacks. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's yeah. a really good point that you're making. I think like the concept of invention is sometimes even overused. Like I, I like when people talk about it as discovery, like the, yeah. it's there, like the product is there. You just have to like unearth it. It's like, I forgot one of the same sculptors said like, you know, he's not sculpting. He's just removing the excess marble until the sculpture is the only thing that's left, you know? So yeah. it's like, it's so that's the part of the job I, I love the most is just looking at a problem and just saying the solution is there. My job is just to figure it, you know, it's already there. And uh, it's it's fun just to think about a problem for for hours at a time, and then finally something's like, kind of a light bulb goes off. Hopefully, yeah. you know, sometimes the light bulb doesn't go off. <laughs> yeah, amazing, amazing. And so, how did it? What, like, what, what was what did it feel like when you just finally come across after all these different iterations? You talk about going to all through all these doors, not knowing that you'd have to go through another one. When you found, I guess, the iteration that exists today, which which is the foam, two sheets of paper, which is which insulates, low costs, low space. Did, did you know when that came around where you were like, this is the one that's going to put our name on the map? I think we we knew, hey, I think we have something here because it hits yeah. our check. It hits our compass, basically. Like yeah. we have 10 filters that we put together and what's going to pass through all 10 of those? You know, this works. It's it's affordable. We can do it at scale. We can patent it. It's it's low density. It's high performance. We can brand it. You know, we can make it in house. It hit, it hit all those, but the real test was okay. We got to show this to a customer. Uh, and if you don't have the whole scale behind it, all you can show to a customer is like a pretty gross version of what's in your head. You know, and so we we showed them panels that were made with, just, you know, like it they didn't look that good. But but the idea they understood. <laughs> yeah. They were like, so you're telling us that you can get it to be lower cost and we can get it to be higher performance. You can get it to be better tolerances. And we're like, yeah, we can get it there. If, as long as you believe in the seed of this idea that we're talking about. And the good thing, you know, it, the timing, we got to talk to customers that they really needed us to figure this out. So they weren't just like, oh, come back when you're ready. They were like, okay, you know, please go explore this and, and keep us updated. Yeah. Which is an interesting another interesting element to your business right because typically that's not what they do they say yeah as you yeah. say come come back when you're ready we don't have time for this right now why did why was this so needed in the industry and why were they comfortable taking a risk on you guys whereas i guess typically that's not the model and, and not what most startups face well i think a couple of reasons i think we we got lucky as far as timing goes because you had you know Blue Apron and HelloFresh and Sunbasket and Plated and Green Chef and Purple Carrot, all these all these companies, they were all trying to figure out how do you get food to people that's fresher, that is more diverse in terms of the meals and the ingredients, that is checking off a certain health box or a certain diet box, and that's going to be more of an experience, and that's going to be affordable. And they put together these really convincing stories around how the grocery store is just one way of doing that. 
but the internet is enabling a whole different way to think about it. And those stories were so good that people gave them hundreds of millions of dollars to go build those businesses, but they didn't have the packaging part figured out. So they really needed someone that was going to bring the same level of intensity and creativity and drive to, hey, we're not going to try to compete with you. We're not going to, we're just going to try to help you just on this very narrow front of packaging. And packaging is kind of a slow, I'll call it kind of boring industry. So when uh. you have someone that's going to wake up and think, you know, a thousand miles an hour about how to solve your packaging problems, they, they kind of treated us like partners because they, they needed that level of, you know, thought and they didn't have it within their own teams at that time. Yeah. I mean, was the issue the sustainability angle or was it more the other things, you know, too big, took too much space and then sustainability was a bonus, right? Because I mean, was, was this a, was sustainability even a topic of conversation back then? Cause you guys have been going for what, 13 odd years now. Is it? Yeah. Tens? Yeah. About, yeah. um, yeah, 10, 10 years or so. Yeah. Sustainability was always what would get us in the door because uh. these companies, they all had to differentiate from each other. And so brand is a huge part of that. And brand is, you know, sustainability is a huge part of brand, especially yeah. when you're talking about buying, you know, grass fed beef, or you're talking about buying organic produce. You don't want that showing up in, you know, styrofoam that was developed 80 years ago. You want that showing up in something that's, you know, there's some continuity with the whole brand story. And these customers, they, they, they don't have a store, you know, so the only brand they can do is their website, you know, their service and, and, and the box, you know, the box Man. that comes is it's the most physical embodiment of their brand. So every part uh-huh. of that box has to be consistent. So sustainability and brand is sort of what got the conversations opened up. And then you get a couple layers deeper and you start talking to the buyers. You start talking about the food safety people. You start talking to like the operations people and they want to know how much does it cost? Is it going to slow down my lines? You know, are you, can we take a chance on you? What's the risk of working with you? But sustainability is usually how it starts. Yeah. And how did, how did they take that risk on you? Right. Did, so you, you've had this idea is a really cool idea. You, you've thought, you know, this is, this is the one I know this works, but then you've got to scale that up to hello fresh numbers and they deliver a lot of packages every single week. So walk me through that process of ideation to hitting some serious scale, which is effectively where you are now. Cause I like, I know from experience that it's not easy. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think that's what every growing business faces is how do you calculate the responsible level of risk to take to get to that next proof point? And so for us, I mean, now we have, you know, a a $20 million machine running this. But before that, we took, you know, a conveyor belt that just moves things from one side to the other. Uh. And we took a second conveyor belt and we flipped it upside down. So now you have two things that are coming on like that. Yeah. And we sent paper through and you know, we'd have a box of starch and we'd dump it on it and squirt it with spray bottles. So like that got <laughs> us, you know, that was maybe $5,000 to build, but it was enough that we could show it to a customer. And then it was like, okay, can we maybe spend another ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 making this a little bit bigger, a little bit faster, a little better quality. Maybe we have a, um, an automated spray nozzle. Maybe we have, you know, some way to deposit the, the starch. That's not, you know, someone with a box to make it a little more consistent. And so, we were able to sort of organically take the next step with customers. And so we said, you know, we, we don't need all your boxes. We don't need all your volume, but give us one location and let us try it out for 50,000 boxes, you know, and let's do it during the winter so that there's, there's less risk for temperature excursions. And then if that works, then you kind of get to this point where you got to sit down with them and be like, hey, look, we love this idea. We think it can be really good for you long-term. Can you give us like, somewhat of a quantifiable promise that if we scale this thing up, you're still going to be interested. And that's where you got to take a little bit of a leap of faith because the customer is not going to pay you a year in advance for a theoretical idea, you know? Yeah. But, but they might pay you three months in advance if you've proven it out, they approved it out a little bit. And you, let's say you give them exclusivity on this for a while, or let's say you give them, a, you know, I, there was several times where we said, look, we guarantee you we'll never sell this to anyone at a lower price. Like uh, that, that's what it means for us if, if, if you jump on first. So, you know, it's, it's hard. You got to figure out what's the least amount of risk we can take to get to the next proof point, you know, in a responsible way. And if you go too slow, 
it'll never, you know, you'll never realize these ideas. Yeah, for sure. Were, were there any moments in that journey where, where you were like, shit, this isn't going to work? And then how did you mentally come over that to, um, yeah, build to where you are today? We have those moments every day. We've had those moments yeah. for 10 years. <laughs> I don't think they'll ever go away. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think stability is a myth. I think everything you buy from your phone to your water bottle to furniture to your car, I think there's someone in those companies that's stressed out saying like, we're done, we're done. We're out of good ideas. We can't do this, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but the, the perpetual, you know, cycle of that is what gives us everything awesome that's around us. So I, I, there was lots of times, like, like I mentioned with, with the fiber product, you know, we ordered all this stuff. We had a million dollar purchase order that we couldn't deliver on unless we figured out how to cure the smell, you know, how to make it perform better with, with Climacell, which is our starch product. You know, there were a lot of times where it was, it, we were spending way too much money on, on the labor component. So we had, you know, just hundreds of people not being, not working efficiently. And so our, our costs were way higher than we thought. We had issues with, with cutting or slitting or wrapping or creasing. We had to develop, you know, calculators to figure out how do you, how do you determine what the right thickness is for different seasons? And at every point, there's definitely a justifiable reason to say we're in way over our heads and this is not going to work. <laughs> you know, by, by endurance, we conquer, you know, you just got to keep going. Yeah. Keep failing forward. Right. That's the, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The only, only way to do it. And it, like, it's, it's, it's so incredible. I mean, you guys have built a huge, huge business out of this and raised a ton of cash with industries like this, you know, it, it's, it's my, the way I look at it is that typically VCs are very geared towards what I call the last generation of huge businesses, which was typically software, right? Whereas companies like yours are very hardware intensive. They're very physical. They're very cash flow driven. How have you found yeah. raising in that and dealing with VCs or investment companies that may not be as set up to a company like, like yours? I mean, have, have you found difficulties or was the problem just so big? that people were pretty willing to, to, to give cash? Uh, it's a really good question. I, I feel personally that we've been really lucky as far as the fundraising goes, not only in terms of people available to give funding, but also just the quality of people that, that we're working with. You yeah. know, they, they, they get the idea, they believe in it. They're very kind of hands-off. They're, they're there to help you when, when you need. But I think what, what they like about this is you know, we're at the intersection of e-commerce and material science and sustainability. So yeah. all three of those are important. You know, e-commerce, uh, there's, there's so many companies that are now trying to sell you subscription boxes, which yeah, means yeah. there's so many operations behind those. There's, there's warehouses and fulfillment centers and there's trucks and logistics and packaging and labor and machinery and automation. So every time you're investing into like an internet company that's doing some sort of physical good, there's a huge operation behind it. So if you can also invest into companies that are enabling those operations to run smoother, even if it's hardware-based, you know it's still riding that kind of same e-commerce wave. Uh, and then if you bring a, a really a really well-thought-out plan to the engineering and the material science and the automation, and then if, if within that plan is a huge alignment from the team on sustainability, you have what on the outside looks like a packaging company, but what on the inside people talk about as a, you know, material science technology company. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think that's a really interesting lesson for founders and just anyone really is that when you sit at the intersection between trends, people yeah. are going to be very willing to, to, to invest or at least have a conversation. You raised recently from Goldman Sachs, right? This, this yeah. huge yeah. Goliath last, round. Last March. Yeah. Last March, you know, which is a huge 140 million round. What what is the plan with that? You know, that that's a huge round to do for a business that's already scaling efficiently. You must have have there must be a big vision there to 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 want to raise a round like that. What is that vision? Well, I'd say there's there's two components to it. Um, one is like a sort of like a fortification of what we have. You know, we have East Coast and West Coast and Midwest now. And you know, uh -huh. the U.S. Is, is a big, big country geographically. And the customers we sell to, they usually have, you know, like a Chicago, Texas, California, New York, you know. So you can't just sell to one of their locations. You have to sell to all of them. 
So in, in a business like ours, an advantage is scale. Once yeah. you have a certain size, you're just in a different category. So we wanted to, and you can build that scale sort of organically, or you can pour some jet fuel on it and do everything you want kind of at once. Yeah. So we we were able to um, acquire a company, a really a company that we, we respected. They were one of our competitors, but they had a really great product. They've been around for a lot longer than us. And now, you know, they're part of Temper Pack. They're called Green Cell Foam. And they have a really great complimentary product. They have a really awesome team. And they also have a geographical location and a customer mix that, that we didn't have. So we're able to do things like that. We're able to invest more into the climate cell product. So we have, you know, not just one line in Richmond, but now we have, you know, two lines in Virginia. We have two lines out in Las Vegas. So we have both coast covered. And then Green Shell Foam has, you know, two other locations. So part of the fundraising was to get to to get to scale and you know scale capacity wise, but also geographical reach wise. And then the second component was to try to keep pushing the envelope on solving new problems for our customers, which kind of uh, brought us to this idea, which we call Wavecraft, which we're launching right now. I'm actually in the Wavecraft building right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk to me about Wavecraft. This is a new project, right? I tried to try to work it out yeah. on on your website, but I'm not a technical man. I'm not a production man. <laughs> so so yeah. if you were to explain to someone like me, what is Wavecraft, what would you say? Well, I would say, um, have you seen, have you been in like an airport, you know, where you've seen those water bottle fill stations where you can like uh, fill, fill your, your bottle? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, they're, that... they're, quite, they're quite typical in Europe. I mean, you could, you could do those in certain, you could do that in London in certain cities and, and Paris, they're really good as well. That you can just refill your yeah, water they, everywhere. Yeah, you see them. You see them in gyms. You see them like kind of in all these yeah, public yeah. spaces. And the the idea behind that was like, why would you ship this around? It's where you're going already has water. Like, yeah. why would you ever move water? You know. And then you see the same thing if you've ever opened up a box that you ordered something from Amazon or something like that, and it had those air pillows in there. You know, yeah. it's kind of like plastic air pillows. Well, back in the day. For Amazon or something like that to get those air pillows, they would order truckloads of of inflated bubble wrap. And <laughs> if you had like X-ray vision and you're looking at that truck, you know, let's say it costs you three thousand dollars to send that truck, you're basically sending empty space, you know. And so someone really smart came along and said, "Why would we ship air when we can just ship plastic and inflate it over here?" You know. Yeah. So it's like, why would we ship water? Why would we ship air? You know, the idea of solar panels being on your roof, it's like, why would we ship energy? You know, so uh, with, with, with insulation, what makes insulation work is the fact that it traps a lot of air. You know, that's what powers insulation, basically, which means that when we send out insulation to our customers, we're sending a ton of air, you know, uh, like a truckload of our insulation is like 96% empty space. And when you're talking about a HelloFresh or someone at that scale, you know, they're getting, they're getting dozens of truckloads every, every day. Yeah. And so their problem and a lot of our customers' problem is how do they use their space efficiently? Because they might have half a million square feet, but they still need more space. And so one of the, one of the, you know, with Climacell, what we were trying to tackle was how do you build something sustainable, affordable, functional, you know? And with Wavecraft, we're taking that a step further and we're saying, how do you build something that also reduces the whole congestion in the supply chain? So our goal was, if we can fit 10,000 units on a truck, how do we fit 100,000 units on a truck? And then we put all these other restrictions on it, and we said, okay, it needs to be 10 times more space efficient, but it also needs to be recyclable. It needs to fit any box size. So if you're shipping you know, a small amount of goods or you're shipping you know, a huge quantity, it needs to be able to work with all that. And then it needs to work with every season as well, because... Let's say it's cold outside, you know, you don't want to be spending a lot of money on, you know, insulation that's this thick if if you only need it to be, you know, a couple centimeters. So we we took all this and we said, what would a product look like that was on demand, that was made from recyclable paper, that had very variability in terms of performance, and that had variability in terms of box size. And it also had to be really easy to use. Like if you can operate a washer or dryer or your dishwasher or a Xerox machine, like you should be able to operate this. And what, what came out of all that thinking 
was this idea for Wavecraft. I might even have so. Uh, here's something with itself, like a panel, like this. Um, yeah, it's kind of like cardboard, but but you can you can flex it that way. Um, yeah, and on the inside, like that. Okay. And typically, to make something like this, you would need a, a you know a, a huge machine the size of a room, and it would just make one thing basically. With this though. It's about the size of like a like a Mini Cooper, like a pretty you know small car, and you can make this at you know any thickness you want, and you can make it you know right away with a push of a button. Um, so 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 basically, just so I get it right, it's, you you're basically saying we're shipping a ton of air, which we don't need to ship to all these people, and then on location when they store our products, they're then still storing a lot of air which they don't need to meet to. To store. Mountains, mountains of air, mountains, like it, it's mountains like a forest. Of yeah. <laughs> so instead, you're selling them effectively localized machinery, which enables them to do it themselves on site. Yes, exactly. That that's phenomenal. So so I mean, for the audience, please like uh, go, go on the website and look at this. It, it is, it, I think it's a really incredible solution to say, yeah, instead of having this like one localized production unit where we create it and ship a load of effect yeah as you say air everywhere we can we can sell them a machine sell them the raw materials and get and and you're decentralizing your manufacturing yes yeah which is really cool because as we all know shipping is a huge in a huge emitter and uh, incredibly bad for the environment so if you could apply this concept across all of the industries that ship unnecessary things it could have a huge huge impact on on the environment so i mean the, the first one that comes to mind is like i mean you mentioned water there but most drinks are uh, water with a very yeah. small amount of other things so what happens if you just send those other things and you create a system which you know like tablets that create your your coca-cola or something same with yeah. um cosmetics you send uh, the concentrate of cosmetics and shake it with water localized. You know, if you if you span yeah. that across every industry, what's the climate impact and how much climate impact could you reduce from shipping? I, just, I think it's a really really fascinating concept. Exactly. It's like once once you once you get that insight, you'll see it everywhere. You'll see yeah. you'll see that we ship so much air and we ship so much water, which is so unnecessary, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So this was an innovation that you acquired, right, from from your competitor, or is it? No, this yeah. one was developed in house. Um, the The competitor that we acquired, they have a starch technology, a, a corn starch technology that's kind of complementary okay. to, to everything that, that we've learned about corn starch as well. So you you're you're an entrepreneur. You've built this really incredible business. It it, see, it sounds like you relentlessly ask yourself questions, which is actually not a common trait outside of entrepreneurship so so there's been a few times on this pod podcast you've mentioned well i asked myself this like, how, like why did you do that is that is that something you do naturally like wh what is this question asking and is, is there a structure that people could use that that could mimic um what you guys do at, at temper pack i think it's a it's a good observation that there's this one book i read there's this company called ideo which yeah. i like a lot i feel like if i could start again i would have gone into like more concentrated down that route, but I didn't learn about them until kind of recently. But I, I read Tom Kelly. I read a couple of his books, and he really emphasizes the role of like the anthropologist in a company that just yeah. looks at people and says, you know, why do they do what they do? You know, why are they doing it that way? And what are their perceived limitations? And is there another way to do it? And he has a great way of sum, summing up innovation, which is kind of a, a vague word. And he says innovation is where you look at something that everyone has seen. But you, but you have a thought that no one's had before. Yeah. So, I think that like with with Wavecraft, we we probably weren't the only ones that had this thought. But we looked at it and we're like, why are we sending out so much air? You know, other people have uh. solved this. Like you said, concentrated shampoo or you know refillable water bottles or, you know, why has no one made insulation in a concentrated form and then given a way to make it locally? But I think that. You know, we just want to be in the habit of always asking, you know, why are people doing things like what, what are they trying to do when they wake up in the morning, you know, a, a company like ours, they're trying to get really fresh, high quality food to people's doorsteps. What's everything that's getting in the way of that? You know, 
um, why, why, you know, why can't they send people seeds and a garden kit and have them grow their own food? You know, obviously maybe that wouldn't work, but like that would be <laughs> yeah. the most efficient yeah. way to do it. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's like, if you back up from that, you're like, well, because of the time lag, they can't send them seeds or because not everyone's in the right climate or they don't have space. So it's like, okay, so you got to send them food. Um, well, why do you have to use packaging? Why can't you drop it off? Well, because the network's too big and there's not people. Okay, so you got to use packaging. Well, why do you have to use insulated packaging? What if you made food that didn't go bad with temperature? It's like, well, that would take a lot of biomedical engineering. Okay, so it has to be temperature controlled. Well, why can't you get it there quicker? Oh, uh, well, you know, the, the trucking system and logistics. and But you just keep backing up into like, why can't this be as simple as the simplest idea? And then can we at least take it one step towards that? Is this something that you do as a company, like systematically? Because you've you kind of had multiple iterations, right? Is it is it is there a what, what I'm trying to get to the bottom of? Is there a, is there a, is it in a, an intentional thing that you guys do collectively to continue to innovate, or is it just just an impulse that you, that that you guys have, and that's what makes you really cool entrepreneurs? There's no system to it. I think that an over kind of over indexing on processes. And sometimes slow things down, but yeah. we do try to bring in people that have a questioning mindset. You know, I think that there are good examples of people bringing a pretty rigid process to it, like a stage gate approach of like discovery and then solution design, innovation, and prototype and feedback. Um, yeah, but I think that uh, you know, we, we kind of just see these things out on the horizon, and we're like, well, let let's be prepared for that. You know, like no one. If if they're if they're taking in ten truckloads a day and it's mostly air, someone's gonna someone's gonna realize that's not the right way to do it. So let let's get there beforehand. And like once that's solved, you know the next problem will be, you know why do they have to use insulation in the first place? And like uh, we got to be ready for like what if people get really efficient at shipping? You know what what's our role? And yeah. we we will definitely be the first to say like the best packaging is no packaging. You know. So uh, it's like, how can we chase chase zero, you know, faster than our customer can get there? How old were you when you started this company, you guys? We were in college, so probably, uh, let's see, I'm early 32 20s. now, so like early 20s, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For someone in their early 20s now that wants to get into climate tech, what, it, it, so if you were, if you were 22 now and... With, with all your knowledge, you have to set up a new business in climate technology. Where are you looking? I have a little bit of like a handcuff because I know this industry well. So even if yeah. I don't like it the best, like I know it really pretty, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So the safest thing to do would be to start another company within the, the, the logistics space. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. There's still a ton of inefficiencies. You know, I think automation in terms of fulfillment centers is, you know, a huge, is huge opportunity in terms of tons of different avenues there. Tracking and sensors and data and sort of like getting a holistic view of actually what's going on is, is another opportunity. Like uh, when you, when you go to a customer and you design a solution, you're designing a solution for millions of boxes, you know, at, at every month that are going to people's houses but you're designing it based on maybe a hundred boxes that you've tested, you know? So what if you could get data all the time from those millions of boxes and see like, Hey, there's little knobs that we could turn, you know, uh. in, in October and in, in the Northeast, we actually don't need insulation because the average temperature, you know, during this time is so you could, so I think there's in terms of aggregating data and making useful insights out of it in terms of how to use less or how to spend less or how to deliver a better customer experience. There's definitely opportunity there. And how do you, as like a young person, see into these industries? I think, I think that's a typically a hard thing to do in, in a, I guess, a B two B business. Is it's tough to like look at a company from the outside in and start actually figuring out what they're struggling with. How did you guys, I guess, do that in the first place? Were, were you speaking to people? Were you reaching out to them? Was it something in your university or sorry, college degree that that you'd done? How do you recommend these, these young people start to really fish out the inefficiencies that exist in, in, for example, the logistics industry? Well, I think reading online is sort of the, the first way to do it. 10 times better than that is talking to a customer. And 10 yeah. times better than that is going to visit them and watching what they're actually doing. Because online, you're getting like a 
a, a very filtered version of, you know, what, what are their plans? What are they talking about? Then when you talk to them, you get an inversion of what are they actually struggling with today and, and, and how are they talking about solving it? But if you actually see what they're doing, there's no filter. It's like, here's what's happening every day. And like that person, you know, 10 times an hour is walking 40 steps back and forth. Like mm. that needs to be solved. Like you need to bring these things closer together. You know, it's like, maybe we can help them do that. So yeah. I think doing whatever you can to get into a customer's world and just observe and ask questions is probably the, the highest fidelity signal you can get to where to start. Yeah, I think as a youngster, you have to be a bit of a hustler, right? Just try and get into these places and, and ask questions as best you can. And people do, they do. Oh, yeah. I think most people want to help, right? I think most people have yeah. an altruistic angle to younger, particularly younger people yeah. that want to create a business. So just like, like just get out there and ask, right? Oh, I mean, it, it, totally. Yeah. Like when, because we started this in college, so we played that card as hard as we could. We said, hey, we're college students. <laughs> we do, we want to learn. We have this, you know, we have these big aspirations about how to build a better sustainable company that does packaging. And we're just wondering, like, can you just give us any advice? You know, can we just like, really what we're trying to do is sell, <laughs> but we're doing yeah. it through the doorway of like, advice. help us out, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Pe people love, um, people love being asked for advice, I think as well. It's actually like a very under oh, yeah. underrated sales strategy. Give me some advice trying to solve this out. And they're like, oh, I feel important. Yeah. You're asking me for advice. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's, it's genuine too. I think people, yeah. people pick up, you know, there's, I don't know how, but like people are pretty good radars of like, is this person genuine or not? And if, and if you genuinely want to start a business that is having a positive impact, I think people are like, yes, I will, I will go out of my way to help you do that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. People do have a pretty good bullshit radar. I think. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we had to evolve with that. Yes. As a leader in the climate tech field, you know, you've created an incredible business, incredibly valuable. What are you most optimistic about in, in this space? Just in, in general and the whole, yeah, in, the in whole general, space. I mean, there's a mammoth climate task that in front of us, I think everyone listening knows that we're yeah. constantly thrown doom and gloom our way, but I'm quite optimistic. So I'm always interested to hear how other people are optimistic as well. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think about this sometimes, and I think about these different players that are involved. You have, you have governments which can literally make businesses do certain things. You know, like legally, you have businesses that are they're, they're these self-interested organisms that just want to grow and survive. They're these systems that just will not let themselves die. Then you have consumers which set the agenda for you know what businesses should produce, and so it's like whose job is it? to to make sure that we're on a sustainable pathway and i think a lot of people say like it's the business's choice like why is you know why is nestle not making this thinner you know why aren't they making a cap out of ldpe you know why aren't they why aren't they getting rid of the label and just you know all this stuff it's like well it's actually i don't think it's their responsibility all the all the time i think it's and i don't think it's the government's responsibility because i think that'll stifle things if, if it's too mandated I think it's the end consumer's responsibility to demand better. The the unfortunate part sometimes that I that I think about is like I think people vote with their dollars, and F. you know if I'm if I'm going to the store, let's say I'm with like my wife, and it's like oh that's too expensive, and I'm like well, what if they charge more for it, but but they've made it out of paper? Like w would we buy it? Probably not, you know. But now I'm starting to think about that. I'm trying to assign, you know more value to where clearly better decisions have been made but you can only do that if you can afford it you know so it's like you can't do that all the time but w the encouraging part is so i don't think it's government's job i don't think it's business's job i think business is just a mirror to what consumers want i think uh, it has to be solved by consumers they have to, yeah. they have to you know set the stage for what they want and the encouraging part is i feel like i see more and more of that these days you know like um like people you know, at least like in my neighborhood, like they, they really sort out their recyclables. You know, it takes time to do that. And the idea of taking that away is like people like, no, 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 like I actually enjoy this, you know? So I think these habits are kind of being built slowly. I think composting will get there. I think the idea of reusing when you can gets there. I think the idea of sort of demanding a higher level of, of thoughtful design that goes into everything we use, it seems like slow, but it seems like it's, it's happening. 
I don't know if you feel the same way, but yeah, for sure. I mean, that's what we do at, at Brave New Earth. So I, I actually have a business. I think people uh, always think I'm a podcaster. I'm not. <laughs> I have a proper business, and we we create sustainable brands around celebrities. I think the biggest yeah. issue with sustainable products there were, there's a few major issues with sustainable products. One, as you've mentioned, is they're way too expensive because of the technology, but how that's coming down now. So sustainable brands are maybe 1.2, 1.5, depends on the industry, time is more expensive. But they typically, sustainable brands have always felt that they need to be sustainable by an image. And that image is so boring. So if you go and look at the sustainable brands in the supermarket, they're like cork or they're just, they're just branded horribly and it's not cool. And the other thing I think, if you stop any, if you, if you stop anyone on the street today and you ask, was the first thing, first person you associate with climate or first thing you associate with uh, climate change, they'll say Greta Thunberg or Just Stop Oil protesters. I love what they've done yeah. for the movement and they were absolute innovators. However, they're not aspirational for most people. They're not relatable. So how do you change that? We, I think you need to make these sustainable consumer products way cooler. And you do that by having celebrities and role models and influencers that they look up to create the brands. I mean, you've seen it work with Ryan Reynolds last week, 1.25 billion exit. You know, celebrities have the attention and influence and connection to create huge, huge, huge brands. What if they're doing that in sustainable brands instead, you know? And then you yeah. have a kid coming out of university and instead of seeing, oh, Logan Paul did a Web3 project, how about Logan Paul did a sustainable company? I want to do a sustainable company now because that's cool. And then you really start to to, to get the ball moving. So I, I, I think yeah. price is an element to it for sure. People are rich, but time and time again, people pay more for cool. Always. Yeah. So it has to be cool first. And you get that. I mean, across it, that's why, well, that's why luxury exists. You know, people pay, yeah. people pay more for luxury. What if, what if luxury was sustainability and what if luxury was green and what if, yeah. And what if uh, the green sustainability was a status symbol, like a Montclair as a status symbol? And and how yeah. do you create status symbols? It's the it's the celebrities and and influencers and opinion leaders that change that narrative, because yeah. we're that kind of species. And that's how we, uh, and in my opinion, that's how we, yeah, we we can really shift the narrative on this from the consumer element. And then, so I always talk about it like top down and bottom up. I would describe you guys as, actually, I don't know which one's which, but basically what I mean by that is there's two elements. One, you have to have the technology to facilitate this stuff, which is what you guys do. It's like, we are creating a solution for a business to be more sustainable. And that's a technology that's enabling them to be sustainable at a price which consumers can demand. And then you've got to have the consumer demand, which is where someone like me comes in and is creating sustainable brands that are cool and sexy and, and nice, you know? And yeah. then if you if we keep pressing from both angles then we get to somewhere where this stuff yeah. is adopted at mass anyway this isn't yeah. a podcast about yeah. me <laughs> sorry for the, no, for the ramble there <laughs> yeah. no that's that, that's yeah. I, I totally agree yeah. with you yeah yeah you gotta make it you know you're you're using you're using the word cool and i would i would approach it from a slightly different word which is like it's gotta be it's gotta be better you know mm. like yeah it, you know and, and cool cool is better you know but it's like yeah. it can't just Desirable. be it can't just be more sustainable i i don't there's only a certain portion of the population that will that will go for something just because it's more sustainable but if it's just all around better and it's cooler and part of that is it's also like wildly more sustainable to do it this way i think i think people will chase that just like you're saying yeah for sure it's, it, it, it comes back to the desirability the, the the way I see it is um, cool is maybe the wrong word, but you, the re reason why I say cool is if so, if something's cool, then people will buy a worse product. Like a lot of these very luxury luxury brands are terrible products. Like they they'll shrink yeah. after ten. Like I bought a Boss T-shirt once, which I guess isn't luxury, but it was luxury for me at the time as a nineteen year old, and it shrunk after one watch wash. And that's why yeah. I was like, I've just bought that because it's cool. It's not actually a better product. Like if I if I'd actually gone to maybe AS Color or another brand that's great 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 brands but it's just blanks so that that's that's kind of like what i what i mean by cool but i guess you're right in the sense that there's many things in desirability it has to be desirable and we are relatively simple creatures in the sense as like we yeah. we we 
get what's cool from other people. So the very concept of trends, trends blow my mind, man. How it can be something can be yeah. the best thing in the world one year and four years later it's the it's the like you wouldn't be seen dead in something. <laughs> yeah. Which is crazy, right? That, yeah. That, that, yeah. That's why I kinda like appealing to a mass consumer population kind of scares me because I just don't understand how trends work. So yeah. I kinda like the fact that, you know, we can we can we can sell millions and millions of dollars by convincing maybe three people that that are decision uh, makers. And so we get to focus on like, does, do we actually believe in this value proposition? As long as we can get like these three companies to also believe in it, yeah. you know, we don't have to convince millions of people, which is for me, it's like, it feels like a safer place to operate. Yeah. Maybe less exciting though. What can we guys expect from you over the next kind of five years? You know, what's the, what's the vision here? Um, did, did, did you have a vision when you were starting this, so like a childhood dream of, I want to, want to be this person, that person or build X business or, or is, is this a case of let's just get to the next hurdle? Yeah, I think, um, vision's interesting because I wish we could say like, we saw this problem, we built a business plan around it. Like we, you know, but it didn't happen that way. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the couple things I would say are consistent is always wanted to build a business, you know, cause I was like drilled into like from, from my parents basically. But, yeah. And then the idea of like, the idea of sending out a physical product and like truckloads of physical products, like, you know, like today we'll probably have, you know, like 20 trucks leave the facility full of stuff that we made. Yeah. The idea of moving real things also was appealing. But beyond that, we didn't, I, at least I didn't really know, you know, I never even thought about packaging, really. Didn't study yeah. packaging or, or anything like that. But so we're like 10 years old. So we've had like two opportunities to make like a five-year vision. And uh, it never unfolds the way you think it's going to unfold. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Like if, if someone came to me and, and said, hey, I don't quite have a vision, but I know a couple next steps. And I've really thought about them. I'd be like, okay. Because once you get there, there's going to be maybe five more next steps. And as long as I can bet on your ability to make the right move every time, I think you'll get somewhere really good. You know, so uh, I, I was just, I was, I was like, how, what, what is this called? And I was listening to a talk with Charlie Munger, and he and he describes, you know, how he operates is like um, we're opportunity oriented. You know, uh, we, we we focus on the opportunity in front of us. So, like with with the Wavecraft idea, we didn't know about that, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, but we saw it as an opportunity, and and we saw it it seems like a good opportunity to think about how do we take out air from the supply chain or with climate cell before that, we didn't know that we were going to make a starch panel, but we saw an opportunity to bring something that was plant-based compostable and wrapped in paper. So broadly, there's a vision of solving customer problems related to cold chain packaging and doing that better than anyone else in the world and growing that profitably. But exactly what the steps are, I couldn't tell you what, what our biggest problem will be, you know, in two years from now. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, and and th th this question may seem so. Please don't answer it if you don't want to. But a, a lot of entrepreneurs look to sell in a way shorter time, and I'm assuming you guys have been approached. Why aren't you guys? Why have you decided to continue building? Because I personally love that in an entrepreneur. Like our, our visions are always to grow, 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 grow. We don't want these like quick exits and stuff. Like, what, yeah. What, why have you guys chosen to just continue building this over the 10 year mark? Well, one thing that multiple people I've heard in the past couple of weeks around temper pack say is that they're excited about building something that's around after they're dead, basically. And I think that's yeah. such a cool idea. You know, yeah. it's like, how cool would it be if like, you know, when your grandkids are still living, there's machines out there in some factory that were designed generations ago you know that yeah, they're, yeah. They, they're producing so much value that they're still around and I, I don't think we can get there with a short time frame i think we need a lot of time to figure out what are those really really good ideas and how do we execute on them really really well so it's it's it, as long as you're having fun it's like well if you sold what would you do you know yeah. <laughs> like yeah, um, yeah, yeah. so <laughs> so i think it, it's it's still fun right now there's still uh, opportunity. We still have a couple, you know, bullets in the chamber as far as like what, what next stuff we want to do. So there's no reason right now. I think once we have something that 
we're happy with if if we ever get there. I think part of a good company is that you're always dissatisfied, but then, you know, maybe there will be something else that, that we want to go do that's unrelated and, and, and we'll sell the business. But the main thing is it's like, are you having fun playing the game? And if so, you might as well keep playing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. I love it. So I, I want to finish on that point because there are, two, there are two topics that I love to talk about on this podcast. One is legacy, which is effectively the first thing you said, right? Creating something that is going to be around when you've gone. And a lot of this podcast, I try and reiterate that climate is a perfect opportunity to create legacy we're living in this time which is kind of risky you know like we, we can see where it's going and there's an opportunity for everyone to create products which will have a lasting legacy on the planet and the human race and it's very clear that if you create a solution in this industry you can create a very cool legacy about redirecting humans up the right path so i, I, I love i love that idea and the second one is yeah. fun which is why, which is basically why I started this podcast is I wanted people to understand that this industry isn't doom and gloom. You can have fun with this stuff and creating yeah. solutions to huge problems is inherently fun in itself. So I love that. So yeah, yeah I want to, I want to, I want to wrap up there because they're, they're, they're two points, which I couldn't express any, any better myself. And for anyone that's listening, that isn't in the climate tech space, come and join because you can create an incredible legacy and build stuff going to be around for generations and have a lot of fun while you're doing it. So yes, mate, huge, yeah. huge thank you for coming on Brave New Earth. I really appreciate it. It's an incredible business and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to, to chat to me. And, um, of course, yeah. cross, we, we use you guys on a couple pro uh, projects actually. I, I can think of a few, so I'd definitely be following up particularly on the food stuff. Oh so cool. okay awesome man yeah uh, uh hugely appreciate it where can people reach you where can people follow the journey if uh if they want tepperpack.com i don't have i don't have any social media yeah i've noticed that it, this <laughs> is all i do i just do this yeah yeah, yeah i guess you know tepperpack.com is, is where we have uh our you know that's where our company lives um, <laughs> nice. but thank you awesome. so much for having me on and uh i really love what you're doing and appreciate the conversation how it was such a pleasure man i love speaking to people that have created such a huge huge change in the world so absolute honor cool okay, okay. All right. Right. Catch you in a bit. Bye -bye.